Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey, welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jen Loud and I'm your host. And this is a podcast about the nitty gritty of the creative life where I interview all kinds of creatives from all kinds of disciplines to try to understand how we can get out of our own way and create with more ease in whatever our disciplines and mediums are. This week, I sat down with Maggie Shipstead. She is a New York Times bestselling author of Astonish Me and Seating Arrangements and her new book, Great Circle. She's won a ton of prizes like the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. The reason why I wanted to reach out to Maggie is Astonish Me is one of my all-time favorite novels. Do you have those novels that stick in your head for years later and you'll see them on your shelf and you're like, oh my gosh, remember that? And her new novel, Great Circle, while very different than Astonish Me, is also astonishing and I think you'll enjoy it. Maggie's had a tremendous amount of success from a very young age and we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about money because I always like to talk about that. So let's dive in and spend some time with Maggie Shipstead. Maggie, do you see any signature ideas in your novels that occur over and over again or things that you can't leave alone or keep coming back to that maybe even surprise you when you're when you're done with a draft or two or five? You know, I think it's been different for each of my novels and in my short stories as well, they're always about different things. But I think that in itself is something I'm always sort of chasing and something that keeps me interested in my work is just, you know, the novelty and the opportunity to sort of, um, yeah, deep dive into different subcultures or different worlds. Um, And so each book I've sort of learned a lot about what I'm writing about and then I kind of immediately purge it and forget about it. I can feel this book already kind of leaking away. (laughs) It's a big book to leak away. One idea that I see in both Astonish Me and Great Circle, and Astonish Me is one of those books that's never left me. I wanted to interview before I read Great Circle, which is also amazing. But Astonish Me, yeah, it just never has left me. And I see in both those um, is the pull towards an epic desire at whatever cost. There's the ballet, there's the exploration in Great Circle, and I, I won't give too much away about these books, people, you need to read them. But there's also a story of mystery. There's a lot of mystery, especially mm-hmm. in Great Circle. I love that because it feels like the world we live in tries to explain everything and you're not having any of it. Yeah. Well, I like literal mysteries. I like to read them. I like, you know, starting with questions. I think my books always start with questions. And then I think there's always sort of a meta thing going on, particularly with Astonish Me and then within Great Circle, the character who's visual artist where, you know, writing about any sort of art form, you end up writing about writing, or I do, you know, I think in Astonish Me is the sort of tantalizing quality of perfection, how dancers sort of maybe intellectually know that they can never achieve perfection, but it always seems like it's sort of right there. It seems like if you do this movement millions of times during your life, you'll perfect it, but you kind of never can. And of course, that's true with writing, like any fiction, it's not possible for it to be perfect. At a certain point, you have to let it go and do anyway. And then in Great Circle, the, the visual artist, Jamie, is 
always trying to find a way to paint that sort of suggests the vastness of space and time and ways to do that visually. And I think that was part of what went into this book as well, like sort of his paintings, he describes as being like origami, they're sort of folded. And I think in some ways, this book is about folding space and time into sort of a discrete cultural object. So I think there's, yeah, that's part of why that reaching is there is because I think in writing fiction, you're always reaching for, for something sort of enormous and unreachable. It's the itch of the mystery that it's about, not trying to pin it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a line in the book, uh, Hadley, the movie star character says that she thinks people like stories that have a little bit of an itch to them. Like they're not perfectly Mm -hmm. satisfying. And I definitely feel that in my, in the stories that I sort of return to over and over again, or books or movies are, are things that aren't perfectly resolved or that I don't feel like I perfectly understand, which isn't to say I don't enjoy things things that are more sort of smooth and straightforward. But I like that, yeah, that itch, which which I think is the same thing as the mystery you're describing. I think so too. So you talked about writing Jamie's character and he's a painter, y'all, if you haven't read the book yet. And I was astonished at how well you wrote about painting. Was that something that just flowed out of you? Did you study how other people write about painting? I feel like I can see the paintings. At the same time, it's not literal. I feel like that mystery and that expansiveness and like when you're writing about his painting, I feel like I'm getting the point of of Marion and I'm getting the point of the exploration on a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. which may or may not have been intentional, but that's what happened for me. <laughs> yeah. Don't think I thought, I didn't do any sort of additional research in how people have written about paintings. Although I know I have read books about artists, kind of the one that's leaping to mind that I read as a child is My Name is Asher Lev by Chaim Potok. I think, you know, one of the keys in fiction, maybe in general, is not to get too tied up in the specifics of description. Like It's a pitfall I call the relative locations of unimportant objects. <laughs> where you're like, well, the pencil was next to the computer, which was next to the mug. And it like, it doesn't matter. Like what matters is that there's sort of a table, you know? And I think right. with the paintings, that was what I was trying to get at more was just to be like, well, it's a landscape or it's beach and it has this sense of space or of curving as opposed to sort of being like, it's a bluish blackish painting. And I think that's a novel is comprised of millions, maybe billions of choices, just tiny, tiny decisions. And that's sort of what you include and what you exclude as far as details is, is of course a sort of ongoing part of that. You know, speaking of making all those choices, one of the things that I see writers and artists struggle with is making choices. Mm-hmm. Has it gotten easier for you? Did you find a way to practice that? I just, I see people get so paralyzed, whether it's blue or pink or Marion's name. Or... Yeah, I mean, that certainly happened to me. I remember sort of fairly early on a few days where I'd be sort of in bed in the middle of the afternoon being like, first person or third person. <laughs> past tense or present tense, these sort of like fundamental technical choices that have a huge ripple effect. And if I changed my mind, I had to go back and it's not an easy thing to change. So I did feel really anxious about some of that. And and especially in writing first drafts, I often feel this sense of impending or encroaching paralysis of like, what if I do it wrong? And it's really hard to get comfortable with the idea that you will do it wrong and that's necessary. And sometimes you have to do it wrong in order to see for yourself that that was indeed not the way you want to do it. I always, I often feel sort of this 
flashing red light in my head that's like, this doesn't work. And I often will ignore it and be like, mm, probably my agent will read this and tell me it works great. That has never happened. She's always like, no, that doesn't that work. Doesn't work. <laughs> oh, I know, you know, but I kind of had to do it anyway. So, you know, I, I'm trying, it's an ongoing sort of challenge to, yeah, to be okay with sort of committing to something and then having to go back and fix it. And with this book, I mean, part of the reason this book is so long is that I did give myself a fair amount of leeway to just include stuff, you know, like it, I didn't start with a plan. I never have an outline. I never really know where things are going. And I I kind of let it sprawl out, which created a lot of difficulties, but also became sort of the project itself, you know, is to manage the sprawl and to see where it led me. That sprawl became part of the structure because we go into these secondary and tertiary characters. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time you did it, I'm like, what is she doing? Why are we going there? <laughs> For me, and again, I don't know if this was intentional. And I think part about talking about fiction or art and after the fact is always like adding stuff that's like, we're just making shit up. Mm-hmm. Something you wrote in the book you said, you, or something you wrote about the book, you wrote part of what motivated me in writing the novel was something Marion didn't totally understand until she embarked on this flight. By completing a circle in a way, you're also rendering it futile. You finish it and you're back where you started and it's also stretching out in front of you all over again. Now what? Mm-hmm. And there was something about the very structure of the book, the writing about Jamie's painting, even her sexuality, her gender qualities, it, it all reinforced that. Did you see that after the fact? Yeah, or? yeah, definitely. You can tell me no. <laughs> I mean, I think you do see things after the fact, particularly now in this phase where I spend a lot of time talking about the book and, and hearing how people have read it. And mm-hmm. and I think, you know, your subconscious is doing a lot of work. And as I said, I, I don't plan. And so I often will hit a problem as I'm drafting, but then often I find the solution of the problem buried somewhere back earlier in the book. So it's always sort of this mysterious set of complex connections guiding the book. And I think, you know, once I started, or from the beginning, I was thinking about the circularity of her flight and, and yeah, exactly that. Like she feels driven to do this. She doesn't really know why in some ways that mysteriousness is persuasive to her. That circularity, I think sort of infused so many other things, Mm -hmm. even though I didn't necessarily sort of think in a sort of spelled out way, like, okay, you know, now I'll make this circular too. (laughs) It just sort of seems to happen. Was there a moment when you realized writing was the thing that you would do with your life? No, I sort of actively resisted it through my childhood and and adolescence. I'd always been a reader. And so I think my to my mom, it makes perfect sense that I'm a writer, but she would sort of suggest it. And I'd be like, well, no. And I, you know, I wasn't a little kid who wrote stories I I wrote your first book when you were five right everyone had or plays or anything you know I didn't write any fiction until I was in college and I took a creative writing class my sophomore year pretty quickly I you know kind of identified it as something I could do reasonably well relative to people around me which isn't really saying a lot when you're in college and so I took another class in my thesis my senior year was short stories and then after I graduated I was just sort of sitting around for a year 
having no idea what to do. And I was drawn to creative things. You know, I sort of wished I could be an artist, a visual artist. I'm not talented at all. I was like, maybe I'll design handbags. I would also be terrible at that. (laughs) And so I applied to grad school sort of on a whim. And so really it wasn't until I was there like doing my MFA that it seemed remotely possible that I would be a writer. And then it's just been, in some ways, it's been a really practical trajectory. Like things sort of kept working out. Like I wrote seating arrangements the year after I finished. And then I had another fellowship that sort of paid for my life. So I've been a full-time writer really since my early 20s, which is crazy. It's so fortunate. So it really snuck up on me and it was not the plan. But but I've also said before that I think in some ways that was an advantage. You know, I didn't have this romantic vision of myself in a right, the whole identity and the whole, yes, oh my gosh, that just about killed me. Exactly. Can I live up to this image of myself at the typewriter? I, I just didn't have any of that, which I think was really helpful for me. So Maggie just said something really fascinating, which is kind of like she didn't have an identity as a writer. She didn't have a set of expectations. And I just want to point out the relationship to what we talked about in episode four when we talked to our Pixar screenwriters. And they talk about how important it was for both of them in different ways to declare they were writers. And if you listen to that episode, you listen to this episode, you may be like, oh, well, which is it? Well, you know, it's neither or, or, or both because identity has to support the fullness of our self and our creative expression. And it needs to be fluid. It's not armor that we put on. It's not a prison. If calling yourself a writer or a painter or an actor helps you to take it more seriously, yay. If it becomes a pressure, an oppression attached to family or academic or other stories that are not helpful, throw it out. Make up a new word or just make yourself, you know, I don't know, a hybrid. And if people ask you, which people tend to do because we love to put each other in boxes, what do you do? And when, where have you published? Or what gallery you've been in or or did your film get a big wide release whatever the question is have a few pre-rehearsed statements that you say that give yourself some space and then turn it around and ask them a question because you know the best way to get people to stop paying attention to you (laughs) and trying to put you in an identity box is ask them about themselves and then they'll be off to the races and it's kind of reflected in the way that you approach writing, right? Instead of having this, I have a theme and I have this big structure, I have this outline, there's more this general openness and spaciousness that I get about both reading Great Circle, not reading Astonish Me though. Did you plot Astonish Me or did you write it the same way? Because it reads much tighter. Astonish Me was a total accident. I, seating arrangements was on its way out, but wasn't out yet. I thought I would write something different. And I went to revise the short story that Astonish Me had been. And it was like 35 pages. And I thought I'd make it shorter. And I made it 90 pages. And then I was, I sort of sent it to my agent and was like, is this, is this a thing? And she was like, yeah, maybe make it longer. And so I did. And so really from starting working on it to when I sold it was five months. And I would just kind of like write along in the sort of present story of it, get to a point where I needed to explain something and then jump into the past. So I think the way it was when I sold it was the structure was actually a little more complex than it ended up being. Like I ended up consolidating some of those sections. So I tend to write things that are just a little bit too, just ask a little bit too much of the reader, I think. In a, How so? 
Well, I mean, this would be me as a reader too. Like Astonish Me was too choppy and you'd sort of get into one thing and then it would jump Mm. back. And so I had to sort of, you know, smooth that out and Great Circle, the way it was originally, Marion's flight around the world was broken up and distributed through the book, but it was just too many threads to hang on to. And so that section at the end, it's mm -hmm. so much better. That was my editor's. It is, it really works. It's true. I thought, I thought about that several times when I was reading it, like structurally, the tension picks up. The, I, I actually, there was a point, I won't reveal it because I don't want to get the story away, but there was a point in the story that I'll tell you when we're not recording. And I actually had to put the book down because I was oh, like, wow. oh, no, no, because I, I mean, just for a night, you know, mm-hmm. but just, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Something I can, I think I can guess. Yeah, yes, you I can guess. Something, oh, yeah, no, no, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong. And yeah. it was really different timing, uh, mm-hmm. narrative drive feeling mm-hmm. than it had been. There was more this meand, not meandering, but discovering. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh no, now we're going. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. might not know, I might not like where we go. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and uh, astonish me, I, I think I'll probably never have as much fun writing a book as that because the whole time I was writing it, I didn't realize I was writing a book. I thought I was revising a short story, even as it became book length. It was before Seating Arrangements was published. And so it was really like writing two first books. And writing Great Circle was much more like the classic experience of writing a second novel, you know, thinking in terms of my career, having expectations and pressures like that or financial pressures. Uh, Yeah, I think so. Astonish Me just feels like this sort of funny, whimsical gift, you know? I'm really interested in what the experience of creating is like for each individual and I know that you've read, you've written or been interviewed that you would go to a cafe before, before, <laughs> before mm-hmm. the COVID. And, you know, obviously that wasn't available to you for a good stretch of writing this. Is it hard for you to stay in the room? Is there a, is there a time that you get into flow? Does it take a while to get there? Is there certain yeah. characters that were easier to write about? Like, obviously, Astonish Me was a different writing experience than Great Circle. Yeah, although Astonish Me, I mean, I've always liked working in coffee shops, I guess, or actually maybe that started with Astonish Me. I was traveling for a lot of the time I wrote it and I was in, I had an artist residency in Paris for three months and I would go to Starbucks in Paris, which people are like, oh, that's so lame and American and sure, but also like at Starbucks, they have electrical outlets and you can sit there forever and you can have a giant coffee and it's where like French teenagers go to make out. And so I just liked having sort of, yeah, some life and movement around me. I can sort of hit like a flow state kind of anywhere and at different pretty quickly if it's going to happen, but some days it's just not going to happen. And my writing practices have really shifted over the years. Like when I was in grad school, I would often write late at night I would really procrastinate until I had a story due and then I'd write a story in three days or something. Um, now I never write at night because I'm a grown up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't want to stay up till four in the morning writing fiction. I t- yeah, I tend to work in the morning. I've had to be a bit, you know, I can't be too precious about it partly because I've tended to travel a lot, like obviously not this year, but there've just been periods when I've been away from home for extended times and I have to sort of be able to get at least a little work done to stay in touch with it. But yeah, I work at my desk in my office. I work out at this coffee shop. I've created a standing desk in my laundry room by putting a box on top of my washing machine. It's pretty portable for me and I can work. 
think like a normal workday would be three hours. And then occasionally I'll have like a seven hour day. I write pretty quickly, despite this book taking six and a half years. You wrote about working on this book in Scrivener, which is mm -hmm. a, a writing software that I love and couldn't write books without because of the mm -hmm. way my mind works. Did you also do your research and put that in Scrivener or... Yeah, a little, I kept a little research in it, but not a lot. Um, yeah, and I, I downloaded Scrivener exactly when I started writing Great Circle, and I could not have written it without it. Hey, quick note about Scrivener. It is spelled S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R, -E -E and you can find it at literatureandlatte.com. And there's also other programs like Dabble and Ulysses that do the same structure that Scrivener invented. And you just have to Google Scrivener and go and look at some video. You can do it on YouTube. You can do it on their website to get a sense of how awesome it is. I can't write a book without it because it allows me to see everything at one glance. And the more important point here is that we have to find the tools that work for us. And sometimes we get stuck in our creating because we haven't found the right tools. And then sometimes we get stuck in our creating because we're constantly searching for the better tool when we could just pick up whatever's in front of us and use it. So as usual, it's like, are we checking in with ourselves? Is something really frustrating us that we need to go in and give a little time and attention to figuring out a better solution? Or are we locked in that let's go to the art supply store or whatever and buy more stuff and then we don't ever actually get around to creating so what do you, what's your relationship to your tools the thought of my draft that I sold was 980 pages and so the thought of writing a 980 page Microsoft Word document just like sends chills <laughs> down my spine it's just it horrifying I'm just gonna crawl under my desk and go to sleep it's right just, now <laughs> or, or having you know 80 different chapter files or whatever yeah. anyway yeah, my research, I did, I had to do it as I went along, just as questions occurred to me. So in some ways, I didn't need to store a lot of it. It would be more like, I need to know this right now. Yeah. And I'd have to find the answer and put it in and then I just move on. But for certain things, like some of the aviation stuff, I would sort of collect it and then hope I could find it again or I'd stumble across it again. Yeah. So sometimes I'll just stumble across something in my research too, that then sends the plot off on this new trajectory. And I really rely on that, um, which is another reason why I don't try to do all the research, you know, beforehand. Like I know some authors do and then have these elaborate filing systems and can find at all, but I just can't hold it in my head. Tell me about one of those moments. Did it include the first date of a five-week-long sea voyage to Antarctica? <laughs> I want to know about that first date. Well, uh, I feel like that, those are two separate questions. <laughs> I'm trying to sneak that in. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, the research question, uh, <laughs> I mean, something like that would be, I stumbled across a documentary about wartime artists, combat artists, and how the military in World War II, like each branch of the military recruited artists, and they were just given this assignment to capture the quote, spirit or essence of war and sort of sent out into the world to do this and, and created these really amazing paintings that do convey something different than a photograph. So I came across that and I was like, okay, in it goes, you know, that's part of the book now. And now, Jamie was already an artist, but... Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, now I know what I'm going to do with them. 
Right, in the war, okay. yeah. So that was that was one example that springs to mind. And then how did the first five-week date, <laughs> you know, either feature into the changing the story trajectory or enliven things? Yeah, so for those of you who haven't read it, there's I wrote a modern love about this. So you can kind of Google that to get the basics. But yeah, what we'll happened- put, We'll put a link in. I was on a magazine assignment to the New Zealand sub-Antarctic. Just kind of fell into an attraction or the beginnings of relationship with this man who is an expedition leader for these, these tourist trips and to really rugged places around the world, but particularly to Antarctica. And we wanted to see each other again. And sort of the practical way to do that was that I came on a trip to Antarctica that was five weeks on a ship. And so it was like, I boarded the ship with sort of this stranger and there was going to be no escape. I just had to go. And it ended up being incredible. Like he's an incredible person. It was really romantic. It was a really wild place in the world. And I was tending bar on the ship and it was amazing. And and I had wanted to see Antarctica for the book partially. Um, although I of course would have gone anyway and, and also didn't date him for that reason. It was sort of this serendipitous thing. But it really changed my attitude toward risk in a way, like both just taking this huge risk to go on this trip with this person. Also, just my experience of this incredibly remote landscape and corner of the world. And after that, I did sort of more and more kind of traveling and magazine writing that was more adventurous. And and from this boyfriend, you know, he was incredibly competent in the wilderness and he knows more about Antarctica than probably just a handful of people. He has a deep experience there. And, and I just kind of wanted more of that for myself. And so I think that impulses and then my experiences going forward from there too of polar travel, of course, influenced the book. And and I came to understand Marion a little bit better through it, I think. I was amazed to read that you were afraid as a child and that travel is kind of a newer thing for you. And it's been a huge stretch for you to travel because you didn't just like go, oh, let's go to the Paris Starbucks. <laughs> you did some, you've done some, as you were just talking about some pretty intense travel. Did you start those to help you write Great Circle or did the travel start then kind of open up the door to making the novel possible? Yeah, it was really symbiotic. It was kind of both. I was traveling to see the places where Marion went. That was important to me. But then also as I traveled, that informed Marion. And also some of those places found their way into the book. Like I happened to go to the Cook Islands and those were close enough to her route. And so I could use it. And so I did. Yeah, I was a really shy child. I wasn't really into new experiences. I think something that changed me was I was a pretty serious horseback rider for a about 18 years in show jumping, which is really scary. And I had to sort of make peace with kind of experiencing fear and nervousness and doing it anyway. And that's really been a part of my experience as a traveler. And I've done like, when I graduated from college, my roommate and I got around the world plane tickets. And so we did some fairly out there stuff, like we trekked in the Himalaya and had kind of these misadventures on that trip. But then yeah, in the past 
five years in writing this book and, and writing for magazines, that's really picked up and, and become something I, that became a bigger part of my identity. And I was always like gone, you know, in 2019, I was out of the country for more than a hundred days and, and just being exposed to people like my boyfriend, my Antarctica ex-boyfriend who have real expertise in the wilderness. I, I sort of became more ambitious for myself in that sense. So I've done, you know, some multi-day treks. There's this long hike in Sweden that's like 270 miles in the Arctic I've been trying to do for the past few years and my time keeps getting taken up. I can't do it, but that's like, you know, one of my life goals in sort of the, the medium term. Yeah, it's been, it's been a real sort of process expanding my comfort zone. So you have had at least one project die on you. You were reimagining Mary McCarthy's The Group, which I just read last year for the first time. Oh. Loved. Yeah, mm-hmm. I never, it was one of those books, oh, I should read that, I should read mm-hmm. that. And finally I read it. Pandemic, thank you. Yeah. And <laughs> another thing I'm fascinated about, what happens, how do we recover from a project dying on us? Yeah, it's such an experience. That was actually what I thought I would write when I wrote Astonish Me instead and then even after I wrote Astonish Me, I thought that I would go back to it. Fall of 2012, I was traveling in New Zealand by myself and again, thought I would work on that project. And it, that's when it sort of very finally died on me. And I just couldn't get it to go anywhere. Part of the problem was that I, w- I was trying to outline it and think it through. I hadn't learned yet that I just cannot do that. And then finally, I was at the Auckland airport at the end of that trip, feeling sorry for myself. And I saw the statue of Jean Batten, female pilot. And I thought, oh, I should write a book about a pilot. And so that was really the seed of Great Circle, um, which I didn't start writing for another two years, but I knew I would write about a pilot. And I've had other things die on me, like during the pandemic, kind of when I was finally finished with Great Circle, I was thinking I would write actual mysteries. And I had this sort of idea for three connected mysteries and started working and it was fun. But also then after the George Floyd protests, I sort of thought, I don't really want to write about cops. And it's really hard to write a contemporary mystery without centering the police and no shade on authors who do that. I just didn't want to do it. And so then I had to sort of stop and think again. And I think it's the moment when something dies is both painful and liberating because it's sort of disappointing. You always hope like, oh, this is the one it's just going to take over and roll forward and be the easiest, best thing I've ever written. One day, it's just not there anymore. And it just feels completely lumpen. Kind of taking pieces of those mysteries, I got to starting something new and I could just feel my energy around it. I, it's a sense of like doors opening, you know, and, and I often am starting from sort of a question. And so my question in this new project, I think is, you know, what happens when two people who don't like each other get married and stay married? And I can feel it sort of sp- starting to sprawl too, which happens. And maybe, maybe post-grade circle is just my way of life. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sometimes we don't create out loud because we think, why bother? It's all been done. I have nothing original to say. Who cares about me? I'm not so-and-so. I have something for free that might help you with that. It's a chapter from my latest book, Why Bother? (laughs) Discover the Desire for What's Next. And inside you'll find just the beginning of a radical reframe around this rhetorical question, why bother? So go to jenniferlowden.com forward slash book and you can get that free chapter right away. Give it a quick read and keep an open mind that maybe your rhetorical question of why bother can really be changed and you can find that energy and clarity to create out loud. jenniferlowden.com forward slash book. Thanks. Thanks.
Yeah, there is a there is a freedom. And there also seems to be that some projects have a lifespan. And if they don't get off the ground within a certain period of time, they're just not going to get. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's real, I sometimes use language about my work that you could use about relationships, like whether I have chemistry with a character or project. I think as in romantic relationships and friendships as well, like timing is part of it. It has to be the right, the right project at the right time to sort of capture your attention and sometimes I think projects die because of external factors it's just like I didn't have time to to get going on it and then by the time I did I wasn't interested that spark isn't there that spark that you talked about which is so fascinating that spark is so fascinating to me that that you looked at that statue outside the New Zealand airport and there's something in your body that went I'm gonna write about this and do you have a sense then that of confidence or like, yeah, that's it? Or is it more like, hmm, we'll see? I think I feel more like, yeah, that's it. But then I also know that I can be wrong because I felt that way about the sort of reimagining of the group. I was like, oh, great, this is it. And it wasn't. But I think now enough times things have died on me, but then led to other things that were. just work. trust it. Yeah, that it's just like door closes, window opens kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about money and making a living as a writer? Because you said, for example, there was two years before you started, when you had the idea before you started Great Circle. Are you finding that you're, you know, in between books, you're making a living from fellowships and travel articles? Does it take up a lot of real estate in your brain at certain times to kind of figure out how you're going to keep the lights on? Well, definitely the majority of my income since I sold seating arrangements in 2010, which was not a huge advance at all, but sort of with translations and selling Mm -hmm. in the UK as well was enough. The bulk of my income spent from books for sure. Yeah, I'm super, super lucky. I mean, not to have to have another job. Lots of my friends write and teach and love teaching and are great teachers. I don't love teaching. I'm really happy I don't have to do it. (laughs) There was a long time, though, between Astonish Me being published in 2014 and Great Circle. I sold Great Circle in 2018. And so kind of the last year or two years of that, I was kind of running down my savings in a way that made me a little bit worried. But fortunately, I had made enough money off my first two books and then not frittered it away, mm-hmm. yeah. which was an important lesson, even though I thought, oh, I'll just bust out this book the way I always do. It turns out, no. you know. And so now I, I think, too, I've internalized that. I'm pretty cautious with how I spend money. And yeah, I mean, the travel writing really helps for sure. But it, I mean, people who freelance full-time just hustle relentlessly and they have to write a ton of stories. And I definitely don't write enough travel stories to support myself. So it was more like slowing down the draining of my savings Mm -hmm. than actually sort of gain my, yeah. I sold Great Circle on a partial manuscript, but the manuscript was finished. It's just that it was a 980-page manuscript. <laughs> What's and we, partial about that? <laughs> we showed her 500 pages to my editor. And she was, like, out. she was like, how much more is there? And we're like, don't worry about it. It's fine. But, it's, just, you know, it's, it's an iceberg. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And so it, there was always this question of like, well, should I try to sell it sooner? But it seemed like the strongest position and what would be best for me is to wait until I had it finished. And now there's sort of that same question of like, do I sell my next book now or do I wait until I have a draft? And the better thing for my creativity is to wait until I have a draft, even though there's this temptation to sort of like do it now and get it done. That's if I allowed my expenses to be such where I needed to sell a book, I'd have to sell this book now. I think it's better for me if I if I just plan on on waiting. How hard is it to start this new novel after writing something that is so doggone epic and had to like exhaust you? Super, super hard. Yeah, I definitely felt very depleted by the time I was done. And that gets, you know, cushioned a bit by spending, it was two years and eight months from when I sold it to when it was published. And so my editor and I did probably three or four drafts you know, working from an existing thing and then, you know, copy edits and and proofs took months. And so then when I sort of had to confront a blank page again, it dawned on me that I'm so accustomed to at least having something, you know, the revisions were a lot of work and often involved big changes, but at least the the sort of rough, like the clay was there. I'd rather revise. I can revise for eight hours a day, but it makes me want to red hot pokers in my eyes (laughs) and I'd really forgotten I think there's always the grass is always greener to a degree you're like oh "Oh, I could just be doing something new (laughs) right right I'm so tired of this I want something new and then you're doing something new and you're like this is hard like I have to make this all up yeah I'm working on that I mean I'm not writing right now I just have too much to do so there's also this question of like what it'll be like when I can actually go back to it do you like doing PR and promotion and having these kind of conversations or do you find at the end of the day you're like please don't look at me I'm going in my bedroom (laughs) (laughs) I mean definitely both I mean yes and it's it's of course really gratifying to have people now have read the book it's no longer my private Mm -hmm. imaginary world of six years and to to hear that it means something to people is is wonderful it's interesting to sort of try to articulate my experience of writing it uh and it's been weird doing it all in zoom you know I think it's it's less exhausting than kind of the grind of mm-hmm. domestic travel tour. in a book tour. Yeah. But it's also like, I, I do more because it's easy to do more. So like one day I did two bookstore events in a day and I had stuff in between and it still can feel like a lot, you know, I miss the incidental pleasures of tour of seeing friends and meeting, mm-hmm. making new friends. But I also know that'll come back and I have a story collection coming out next summer. So I think by then it, the, the experience will be at least partially back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. So I always like to end by asking my guests, what will you learn next? Hmm. Well, I think I would like to learn to contain the sprawl of my <laughs> work and my thinking a little bit. You know, something I really envy about some other writers' work is just resting sort of extended deep focus on one person's psychology and writing something that's really interesting, but is just localized to this one person. I'd really like to learn how to do that. And I don't think that's going to be this book, but maybe after I'll try to do that because that I really like to read books like that. And it's sort of mysterious to me how you can sort of just sit with one other consciousness, but I'd like to find out. Is there a book or two that come to mind as models for that that have absorbed you? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of Wonder Boys. I really like that <laughs> book. First part, just a straightforward first person. Um, I that really was his like, first novel, right? 
second. Sec- I think it was, it was Mysteries of Pittsburgh. Oh, you're right. Yeah. And then I don't know. I, during the pandemic, I read Monogamy, Sue Miller's most recent I book. really enjoyed that. But it's kind of sprawly too. In its way. Yeah. In its way, right? But At it's sort of time. like she drills down on kind of domestic life in this way that I'm afraid to in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like, is there enough there? Do I have enough to say about that? And but so you're that, kind of an undomesticated person. <laughs> Uh, yeah. In the best sense of the word, you know, yeah. there's a there's a way that I feel like in, in reading about you and reading your work over the years that there's an embrace of that, you know, there's almost like there's a wildness, not to project onto you, but that, that this book and your travel adventures in highlight or magnify. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And it's it's come as a surprise to me, like in my early 20s, I really wanted to get married and have a a more traditional domestic life. And then at some point in my mid to late twenties, I stopped thinking about it. And I've never since then been at all motivated by, by those things. And it can be difficult, you know, to sort of resist the benchmarky sort of model of, of womanhood. And I think in some ways my travel and my peripatetic way I've lived in some ways is this sort of assertion that I'm fine. You know, mm-hmm. like I think otherwise people are like, oh, he's out there, you know? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I no, don't one believes, no one believes you when you say you don't care. Yeah. He's a kind of, he comes along for five weeks and takes me to the or, you know, or, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I never thought I'd have the traditional life. I remember my sister saying to me at some point, I was supposed to have the white picket fence and they kids and I'm like yeah this was never supposed to happen <laughs> well, it, yeah. it sneaks up on you either way I mean I yeah I will say I have a new boyfriend who's like the first person I've dated who I actually live in the same city as in more than a decade and it's great <laughs> I'm like all right this is also very nice <laughs> right things keep changing and growing and we get to follow it and that's one of the pleasures of Great Circle thank, thank you. you so much Maggie it was a pleasure oh, thank you Jen it was a delight So here I am with my annoying question. I hope not. My loving question that I ask you every week, which is, hey, what are you going to take away? What are you going to write down? What are you going to remember? What's going to stick with you in your creative toolkit? Maggie had to have a lot of determination to stay with that book for seven years. What kind of determination do you need to call on this week to keep going with what matters most to you and to help you create out loud? Next week, we have a really different kind of guest, Tomiko Beyer, and she is a poet and an activist in racial justice and environmental justice. And she's written a book of poems that speaks to holding the hearts of activists. And she's done a really different kind of book launch because she didn't want to participate in the usual push, push, got to get it out, got to get as much attention as I can, got to sell as many copies. She really wanted to do it from the same generous, nurturing spirit that she wrote the poems over many years. So we're going to talk about the business and the details of that kind of launch. And she's going to read a couple poems to us. And I think you'll find it really a nourishing episode, especially if you're any kind of activist. Speaking of activism, I have a project called Create Plus Climate, and you can go to jenniferloudon.com and click on that. It's totally free. Every two or three weeks, I publish some ideas about how to use your creative voice for the climate crisis, how to be creative about speaking up, being heard, and cultivating stubborn optimism. So again, that appeals to you. Go over and check it out. Love to inspire you to raise your voice and be part of the wave of stubborn optimism that believes we can turn this crisis around. See you next week for Tomiko. And in the meantime, be sure and create out loud.